Thank you for listening to Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. Buffalo What's Next is on summer break and will return with new content shortly. As we take this break, please continue to tune in to WBFO Monday through Friday at 10 a.m. and 9 p.m. for producers' picks of some of our favorite episodes of Buffalo What's Next. How can we afford not to talk about race? About education. About segregation. About humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. If we're going to have some real healing, we've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. On today's episode of Buffalo What's Next, Summertime Producer Picks, we look back at three segments from three previous episodes. Jay Moran sits down with John Washington to talk about housing inequity from June 17th of last year. Then, we revisit a conversation between Bridget Jaipal Valenza, an assistant director of dance at the African American Culture Center, Jacqueline Cherry from August 24th. And we end the show with Jay Moran with Denise Barr, who is a part of the Fruit Belt Leadership. The two discuss healthy food access on the east side from June 1st of last year. First, Jay Moran with John Washington from June 17th of last year. John, for a long time, uh, well-known for his work with Push Buffalo here in Buffalo, still involved in ho- housing, but on a, a more national level. We'll get into that a little bit. And also, uh, Afro, Afrofuturism. I, I struggle with that. I apologize, John, with that. We want to get into that, too. But first, let's 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 talk about housing mm-hmm. just a little bit about Buffalo, because in our conversation before we went on the air, mm-hmm. you really brought up a lot of things. And I, just a couple of questions. First of all, in terms of evictions, from the BMHA, the Buffalo mm-hmm. Municipal Housing Authority. How many do they have each year? Uh, they file about 4,000 each year, and they're the biggest evictor in the city of Buffalo. And, um, you know, one of the worst public housing authorities uh, in the in the nation, if not the worst. And you've, uh, you know, you, when you were with Push Buffalo, obviously you dealt with it to a certain extent, but now that you're doing this more on a national level, mm-hmm. you have other scenarios to compare to. Yeah, so, I mean, there's a national public housing crisis, and, um, you know, there's there's been, uh, since 1999, it's actually been illegal to make investments in public housing. Uh, there's an amendment called the Faircloth Amendment that prevents uh, certain types of investments. Every public housing authority has been trying to figure out how to f- basically phase themselves out. And, and for me, that's a recipe for, you know, massive homelessness and for, for furthering the poverty and segregation that we see across the country. Uh, but looking around the country, I think Buffalo has the worst, uh, is the poorest, most segregated and most corrupt city in the country. And I think that that, um, that, that feeds into why um, the east side is 92% black, why uh, we have some banks that are redlining our communities and keeping people from being able to own their homes, and why people in the city that has the worst housing stock, the oldest housing stock, um, you know, are, are suffering so much, and, and specifically, um, you know, black people whose homes are typically worth less, uh, undervalued, uh, who struggle to get home ownership because of redlining, who are forced into then a rental market that also, um, you know, doesn't treat them with full dignity. And I think these are really important things to highlight that that people, I think some people think that we've gotten a lot further uh, around housing than we actually have because they see like nice new shiny buildings, but but actually things have been getting a lot worse. And another interesting part of, of this whole issue is the, I guess we'll call it rootlessness mm-hmm. that is evolving out of the housing situation here in Buffalo. Mm-hmm. How frequently people are on the move in the city of Buffalo, mm-hmm. notably on the east side of Buffalo, and what that does to the fabric of a community. 
Yeah, I think, um, you know, we all kind of grew up in this like Americana illusion of, you know, you live in a neighborhood, you you work at a job for 30 years, you pay your mortgage for 30 years, and everybody in the community stays together and raise their kids together. The reality is the average person in America now is moving once every 18 months. Uh, that's average. That's Let's the average person, that. yep. right? So that means poorer people are, are moving far more often. And, um, you know, because of the commodification of housing, because of how much money is in housing, because housing is federally backed. I mean, that's what foreclosures and mortgages are about. Every mortgage creates more and more money. So when we talk about inflation and the pressure that's on the average person, it's the housing costs, it's the rent. But embedded in that, it's also the money that the federal government is putting into, into these mortgages and, and putting into housing and the money that it's expected out. And so the more people that make money off of housing, the more it's going to cost and the more people who are going to be poor. And the way our cities are designed, those poor people are going to be concentrated in black and brown neighborhoods. And Buffalo is, is the best example of that. And what that, that also does is it means that, you know, we don't have neighborhoods in the same way, right? I think Buffalo is one of the last places in, in the country that still has a lot of real neighborhoods where you can find people who've lived there for 50 or 60 years, but that is eroding. That is going away. And people, as, as housing prices go up, people can't pay the taxes or they're being forced to sell. They can't get the financing to fix roofs and foundations, so they're forced to sell. Uh, and then people are buying them up and renting them out and house flipping and making these doubles, and that makes for a really transient community. People are moving in, moving out, getting evicted, buying a house, but people are not staying together, valuing each other, and developing community um, in, in the same way that they used to uh, because they can't afford to. And when we talk about making a community, there's been a lot of discussion here on this program and elsewhere uh, since May 14th that we need to be together. I mean, there need to be spaces where we can be together. You have an interesting take on that, though. At the same time, there actually are great parks, mm -hmm. but even the parks mm -hmm. are segregated to a certain extent or even to a large extent. And there is a structural problem that's, that's, that really plays into that. Well, I mean, the 33 cut, cut the you know, greatest park system in the world in, in half. And so we have public spaces, but we have, uh, again, the worst public transportation infrastructure. Uh, the, the NFTA continues to cut bus routes, uh, continues to to treat riders as expendable and and really is just is just phasing itself out. Um, and I think that that means that people, especially people who don't have cars, don't have access to the same places. And it's why, you know, in Buffalo, if you, you know, it's very easy to get to the Elmwood, Delaware quarters. It's very easy to get downtown, um, but to move around on the east side, to move around um, even on, you know, different parts of the west side is is incredibly difficult. And it means that people with cars and money are going to be in certain places and, and people without them are going to be in certain places. And I think that it's it's by design. And I think that as a nation and especially as our city, we have to start to look at and being willing to look at every day the fact that we live in, a, in, a, in an apartheid, right? There, there are separate systems for separate people here. And racism is a story that is told that says that that black people are responsible for the ghettos that were created for them to be put in. Uh, when we talk about the Warsaw Ghetto in Poland, people are very clear that, that Hitler changed the rules for Jewish people so that they would be forced to live in that ghetto. 
And the average white American does not believe that about the ghettos of America. And the average person in Buffalo doesn't believe that about the east side of Buffalo. They believe that people deserve to live there. They deserve that their conditions uh, and not they don't look at the federal and local policies that have created those conditions and how uh, insanely hard it is for people without supports um, to come out of these conditions and be quote unquote successful. And I think that that's what, what's really hard about this moment is that people um, are, are having to take an honest look at the fact that we live in, in, in a society that is just as segregated as it was. Um, you know, when, when, when we celebrate Martin Luther King and we celebrate the mountaintop, like we haven't anywhere near close to reach it. And I think that moments like this force us to, to realize that because this, this terrorist, this white supremacist, you know, found this city because of structural racism, because structural racism created a. He knew mm-hmm. where he was going and he knew who he'd be able to kill. He, he looked for the highest concentrations of black people in New York State and. Buffalo is the most segregated place in the country. The east side of Buffalo is the highest concentration of, of black people in the nation. And so, you know, for, for, for him, it was the best place um, to, to try to strike all of our hearts. Uh, and I think that he took the lives of some really powerful, beautiful and amazing people. But they were there and they were put in that position because uh, even the deacon, you know, gave people rides like he understood and was resisting this system of lack of access to transportation and the impact it had on his community. And so what I want to say is America is apartheid. It is racist by design. Um, And so, you know, giving out food and raising money and all of these things are great. But this city and most American cities are designed to produce these outcomes. And until we address the fact that this country was designed to segregate and to create this modern duality, this this neoconservative, neoliberal politic, this left-right duality isn't just you know, people's personalities, it's, it's Main Street, right? And it's like one side of Main Street and the other. And it starts there. And until we start to change the way that we do federal policy, change the way that we fund cities, change the way that we resource communities and value communities and even just talk about them, um, all of this other stuff is, is going gonna, gonna to fade away. And, and we're going to be back in the same position that um, people like Robert Moses uh, worked so hard for their entire lives to make sure that their legacy was the fact that the East Side was still going to be 92 percent black long after he died. Talking about how federal and local policy comes to a fruition in, in certain cases. We could talk about the feds. We could talk about local. But when it comes to the BMHA, mm-hmm. it's kind of a combination of both in a lot of ways. And the BMHA... Uh, just what one point above being in receivership explain what that means um, you know, basically, if you look at the conditions, uh, there was an investigation done earlier. We all know the conditions. Uh, people joke about them now because they've been so bad for so long. But people are living um, in conditions that violate the warranty of habitability, that violate every single federal policy on the books. Uh, there's a high level of corruption. Uh, we have a mayor and um Entire BMHA staff that are under multiple federal investigations right now um, for for contracts, for bid rigging, um, you know, even the Simonellis and Alan Colieros from Empire State Development um, were, were caught bid rigging. Um, and so basically they're they're laundering the people's money uh, in order to create jobs for people while people in the Perrys are living and suffering while there's 700 empty units that easily could be online uh, while we're paying the Buffalo Police Department. That could be, and you're 
you've, if you've been in there, you've seen that. You, there's no doubt that that can I be mean, done. They let them rot. They let them rot with the heat on for seven, eight years now. I mean, they, they evicted people out of them and they made the, the explicit and I think illegal decision not to put new people in those homes. Um, and they've just continued to let them rot and not maintain them. And so um, I think there's there's very simple ways that most people could, could get those units back online. There's an enormous amount of state and federal money to do so. Uh, but that's not the purpose of this BMHA. The purpose of this BMHA is to is to phase itself out. And if you look at all of the numbers, all of the behavior, all the decisions they make, it is not an institution that wants to last and serve people. It's an institution that gives out enormous contracts to people who uh, have political connections um, and, and is trying to set up the developer class in Buffalo to, to continue this segregation of, of, again, giving them free land, free resources, no taxes downtown. Um, and, and who pays most of those taxes are people in, in other neighborhoods um, that then can't afford them and have to sell them. And it's just this, this cycle, this loop uh, that continues to push um, people further into poverty and, and make make it harder and harder for them to live their lives. And I think the BMHA has a role. I think, you know, City Hall has a role. Empire State Development uh, and the state and the county all have a role. And, and I think that's what makes this moment really difficult for the average person in Buffalo is, you know, everybody wants to help. Yep. But, you know, um, no one has, everyone has also participated in making this the poorest and most segregated place. And so it's hard to, it's hard to hear sometimes that someone wants to help when this has been going on for so long. And I would think that average person would come back and say to you, I had no idea. Right. This is what I've supported because I always thought I was helping. Right. And then people think it's natural. People think this is just what happens instead of looking at the numbers, looking at the corruption, looking at um, even even, you know, the the Buffalo Niagara Partnership and the Community Foundation and the way that they fund. If you if you look at any map of Buffalo and where resources go, um, you you see the east side. I mean, years a few years ago, it was Evans Bank. Right. They they were incredibly public like incredibly open about the fact that they did not lend to anyone on the east side and they 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 wouldn't have had any consequences if they hadn't explicitly put it in marking materials at ever which which most banks do. I mean, M&T Bank has been here since 1856. Uh, Bob Wilmers is notorious for his political influence and um you know they 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 4% of their originations for mortgages are for black people. City's 38% black. You can't tell me that there's more than 4% of black people that, that have the credit and capacity to purchase homes. Um, and so I think that, you know, it's it's really hard for the average person to acknowledge that redlining and all of these other things, even though you might see a black realtor on Facebook with his thumbs up and selling a book to it, when you look at the statistics and the numbers, um, Black people receive less than four percent of the lending in this in this in this community, and so you know all of our small businesses, all of our homes are um, in a much less stable position than 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 they are for white people. And I think that's not you know white people often think about white privilege as an attack, but it's it's a reality that there is a racial wealth gap. It was you might be able policy. to get a home improvement loan to fix your loan or a small business loan that would help 
facilitate your business and keep it moving at a critical time. Yes, and 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 so you get more help, and um, and then you know when it comes to even car insurance, you know people on the east side pay more in car insurance. Uh, it, there's just the the black tax, right? The cost of being, and then that that is expanded by the poor tax, and then if you're a woman, and then if you're queer, and you add all of these layers, and so it it really at this moment, I'm I'm I really encourage people to to just sit and not try to come up with an exact answer or a single thing to do. But think about like the way in which you live your life in a way that allows you to not see or interact with with so many people and with the, like how brutally bad life is in Buffalo for, for a lot of people. John, we, we came with this uh, two-pronged thing. Your work with housing, of course, uh, has uh, you know been what's, what's uh, brought you uh, made you well known here in uh, uh, Buffalo, especially with Push Buffalo now more on a national level, but also, also Afrofuturism. We wanted to get into this because it's yeah. now it's almost two parts of of the same thing. Right. One is this dire reality mm-hmm. that has layers and layers of complexity upon it, and then another one that it, it's taking a, a more hope, hopeful look at the future. Well, I think that. Um for me, a lot of the violence and a lot of what is really hard about being black in Buffalo, um, being black in general, is just that if you look at history logically, it's hard to believe that things are going to get better. And it's hard to like wake up in the morning and see a future in a city that would um, you know, isolate its people this way. Um, and so to me, Afrofuturism is really about building a vision. I believe that everyone from every person who ever Every ancestor that I have and that we all collectively had that got us to this point believed in a future beyond what they could see. Uh, I, I think a lot about, you know, Harriet Tubman and the thousands of people that she freed and the fact that she, you know, believed that each that, that in some one of those people, like there was going to be an answer. There was going to be something that, that she couldn't see. And it was her job to make sure that as many people survived and got free and could then continue to do that. And so acknowledging the position we're in, acknowledging how bad things are, we we have to believe um, that there is a future beyond this. And ultimately, I think, you know, why we use the Black Panther and why we use Wakanda is it's based on this idea of, you know, Africans were doing metallurgy and building castles 3,000 years before Greece and Rome were were even ideas. Um, And it is actually Africa that developed Europe. It's Africa that developed the Middle East. It's Africa that developed Asia. And it's not to be superior, but to say just scientifically, that's where human beings come from and that's where our development has birthed from. And those are the people who who spent the longest time in practice and place and colonialism and the, the brutal way that the rest of the world has treated Africa held Africa back. And I think that the same is true of of every place where there's an African diaspora, especially in America. And so the idea is, you know, what if that didn't happen? How far would Benin, how far would uh, Kemet, how far would, or Egypt, uh, how far would Punt, how far would these nations have been able to go had they not been pillaged, had that, had people not been enslaved, and how far could we go um, if white supremacy didn't exist? And actually imagine that, focus on that, and then figure out ways that we can use um, you know, the Kwanzaa principles and principles of African unity to start to move our community toward a vision of the future. Um, because right now, when, when, we, when you sit in the past, it's incredibly difficult um, to, to move forward or to believe and to hope. 
Now, so you uh, and your group, as I, you're actually, you know, getting together, holding mm-hmm. sessions, usually with young people, not always. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Try to be intergenerational. And uh, not necessarily all black people as yeah, well. Right. Because uh, the galactictribe.org mm-hmm. is the website you can go to to find yes. out about it. Talk to, talk to us all about what a typical session might be like. Um, we usually uh, start off just with a check-in, you know, checking on, on how people are, how they're feeling. And, you know, sometimes people don't want to be totally public about how they're feeling, but we try to be very aware. Um, we have... Usually we'll read uh, an issue of the Black Panther and we focus on uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates was a writer for uh, for a few runs that were um, just really powerful, futuristic retelling of what happened in Maroon communities and slave rebellions. Um, we read a lot of Reginald Hudlin's and Christopher Priest's work and really unpack um, some of these themes, these dynamics and these ideas and show, you know, how the characters um, are able to show up really powerfully because of the social structure of Wakanda, which is which is really based on um, on, on Pan African Pan African socialism um, and and the leadership of of the folks who liberated a lot of African countries during the fifties and sixties, and I think that. Um, we, we try to unpack it. We try to talk about lessons. We do this, you know, from Juneteenth to Kwanzaa. We talk about um, the Kwanzaa principles, taking one each month, talking about how we can uh, implement them in our lives. Uh, and then we usually make art or have some sort of visionary exercise where uh, an aunt, you know, who's, who's uh, our main facilitator is always really good at thinking of good questions to challenge, especially young people, to think about what things might look like in the future and, um, you know, what things we need to think about or change and envision for, like, how do we want life to look? Uh, and, and actually saying, you know, especially if you're a young person, like, you you have an opportunity to, to live out a vision and we want to support you doing that. So we also have a Wakanda Alliance Afrofuturist Academy where we have a youth group that does an after school program that help us facilitate our sessions as well. And it's been really just powerful to, to watch a lot of them grow and to see um, that honestly, I think all of them are going to create things that I could never think of. That was Jay Moran with John Washington from June 17th of last year. Next, Bridget Jai Paul Valenza talks about critical race theory, how the arts can help healing and more with Assistant Director of Dance at the African American Culture Center, Jacqueline Cherry from August 24th. We are here with Jacqueline Cherry, the Assistant Director of Dance at the African American Cultural Center. Jacqueline, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for asking and thank you for having me here. Uh, I'm... I'm excited about some of the things that I'm seeing and experiencing and participating in, so I'm doing pretty well. It's, it's been such a difficult time for everyone in Buffalo um, dealing with everything that's happened, um, the emotions around it, and the politics around it. Um, for our listeners, you may have already seen Jackie. Can I call you Jackie? Please. Thank you. Uh, performing most recently at the Tops, reopening um, when it reopened. Um, talk to me about your dancing. When did you start or when did you know? Oh, you know, um, <laughs> I used to watch In Living Color a lot. 
And I loved those fly girls so much. <laughs> and I said, one day, I want to be a fly girl. <laughs> um, and I just, I loved watching them dance. And, I, and so I got into dance classes about age 10, I think. And I just never stopped. I just love dancing. And indeed, you are a fly girl. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Take one to <and> Noah, honey. <laughs> Thank you. Uh-huh. Uh, was it a difficult decision for you? And you know, sort of how do your how do your parents react to? Okay, this is what I want to do. This is how I want to live my life and express myself. And, you know, that can sometimes be a challenge for parents to hear, hey, child of mine, <laughs> yeah, I'm going into the arts. Well, actually, my mother and sister are both music teachers. Um, my brother plays drums and he writes music. So I come from a very, uh, very musical family. Mm-hmm. And so actually the, the, um, the idea was that I was supposed to pick up something in the arts, play some kind of instrument or something. I do sing. Um, but because my mother and sister are really good at like piano and organ playing, I was like, I'm not going to do that. So I'm going to go over here and dance. <laughs> <laughs> because it's helpful not to necessarily have a compare and contrast. I'm going to just let them have their thing, all the glory that they, you know, <laughs> that they deserve. So it's only recently in recent memory that point shoes. Now point shoes for people who don't know what those are, are the shoes that ballerinas wear. Um, So it's only in recent memory, in recent times, that point shoes actually come now in different colors. They come in black and brown skin tone colors Mm -hmm. versus non black and brown skin tone colors. Um, As a woman of color, was it difficult when you went to school, when you were training, Um, especially in an environment where there isn't that much representation? Oh, yeah. Uh, Ballet, (laughs) for for the longest time, ballet was considered the foundation of dance, you know, Mm. the foundation of all important movement. Uh, And that is being confronted now. Um, But as a black dancer (laughs) with a black body and features to my body that are not Eurocentric, um, I've been ridiculed and criticized and and, um, I had a very difficult time really with the, the the fact that I wasn't accepted in ballet the way that I wanted to be. I mm-hmm. love ballet, um, but ballet is a lot about the lines. Right. So you have these lines um, from your arms down to your torso throughout, throughout um, your body. And so the whole point of point shoes, the whole point of um, ballet shoes being the same skin color is that it continues that line. Ah. Uh. And so when you're a black girl wearing pink shoes, the line is broken. The line is broken. But black bodies aren't exactly linear. We're very curvy Hmm. already anyway, so we don't really fit in the genre. Right. Talk to me about how one processes that, that 
sort of inherent systemic racism <laughs> in the arts. How does one process that as a as a person who teaches, as a person who dances, as a performer, um, as a casting person, as anything and any place that has to do with the arts? It's very Eurocentric. Yeah. How do you deal with it? Uh, I think... It really just depends on like where you are in your in who you are and in your art um, I have gotten to the place where I am happy to be who I am uh-huh. and that took some work uh-huh. um, and I did really well my parents my mother my grandmother did a really good job of teaching me how to ass- uh, assimilate yeah. okay so you got to assimilate you have to do these things to to fall in line and even if you don't quite fall in line just try <laughs> you know just do the things that that can compensate right um and after a while you just get sick of compensating i don't want to do that i want to to live and express my art through my body the way that my body is shaped in the skin color and in the movements that are native to who I am and my people. And so uh, I think you just have to kind of um, develop your conviction as an artist to say, you know what, this is who I am. This is my art. Uh, this is this is my body. These are my feelings. You danced at the reopening of Tops on Jefferson. How do arts help when we're processing trauma, when we're processing grief? Uh, or even, that's certainly one, one subject, but also when you're processing joy and, and processing happiness. How, how do the arts play a part in that? Expression is really important. Um, I just went to the county fair and I went on the, the, the turning cup ride and I felt the thrill come through my body. And so I screamed, ah! And it was important to let that out. Right. To express the feeling that I had. And when we, when we are having very deep, strong emotional feelings and we're dealing with trauma and situations that are affecting, you know, communities, it's important to express to let go of those feelings, to acknowledge those feelings. And what art does is that it, it, you know, there are so many different art forms. I can take my art and express something that a lot of people are feeling and they can see it through my movement and through their, uh, just through experiencing, watching it, they can kind of release some of that uh, feeling that they had. Uh Or if you hear a song, and it's a song that that kind of reminded you of a sad time that might uh, just taking the time to reflect on that and to acknowledge that is important so then when we have um times of terror and of grief and of sadness and anger expressing all of that together as a community and sharing in that time together is very important it's part of the healing process to acknowledge that there's something wrong Um, and then to acknowledge there is hope and there can be joy after this. Right. And constantly reminding ourselves, our community, that we can work together to make things better and to come out of this with something that is fulfilling and, and joyous and happy and bringing us together. Those are the things that art does. 
mental health professionals will certainly tell you that you know the body holds trauma this isn't the first time that we've talked about that on our program um, or that some people are hearing it and so movement sort of helps release that mm -hmm. uh, in terms of performing and dance specifically mm. um, what role um, did that sort of that somatic sensory healing play in your choreography that you you did for the reopening of tops so important <laughs> so important so that whole piece was about embodiment i'm embodying this feeling of reaching up for hope i'm kind of gesturing down in in embodying sadness and grief right so just kind of taking those feelings and taking the things that I really wanted to highlight and using the body to to illustrate them um, it's very important to be able to kind of call upon um, kinetic empathy right so if you have somebody who is doing a movement that you remember doing it might kind of you know bring that to your memory right um, and and bring up something within you so then when you see somebody dancing it and, and they're doing it in an artful way right that triggers that release that triggers that for you yeah yeah and so it might even <laughs> if you don't notice that you're tense in your jaw or you're tense someplace in your body when you're watching somebody else dancing that might even help you kind of release some of that just in sitting where you are right which makes arts so important mm -hmm. in terms of helping people heal, helping a community collectively heal. Yeah. Um, and then certainly with the individual being able to, to release some of that, that energy, some of that um, trauma that really is, is held sometimes general, generationally in people's bodies. Yeah. Um, that we don't necessarily always acknowledge um, because it's, it's difficult, right? These are, are difficult conversations. When you talk about movement and you talk about um, sort of sitting with sometimes this fear, um, a lot of those emotions, a lot of that movement, a lot of how you carry yourself as a person of color informs the things that are around you. We were talking uh, before we were on the air about a little bit about critical race theory. Mm -hmm. And we were discussing, you know, traffic stops and how in terms of de-escalating a situation, movement and, and body is so important. Can you talk to me about that a little bit? <laughs> yeah. So, oh, yeah. Critical race theory, right? What do you see when you see a person of color? What does the person who is conducting the traffic stop, the police officer, what do they see when they see a person of color behind the wheel? That question is informed, or the answer to that question is going to be informed by generations of stereotypes uh -huh. and uh, examples you know negative examples of all what that people unconscious bias yeah, all, all of these unconscious biases all of these things right so as the person of color sitting in that seat 
you simultaneously have to kind of take on or or account for all of these things that this person might be projecting on you and you have to fight against that. Mm-hmm. Okay, if I sit up straight and I speak proper English the correct way and make sure that I enunciate, maybe you'll see something in me that will trigger you to not feel like I'm the bad example of who you think I might be. Right. Um, and so your body language might either tense up or or just try to project, you know, some, something other than yeah. other than other than the fear that you might be feeling yeah. as that as that occurrence, you know, as as that stop happens or or as that encounter happens. Yeah, and as as a person of color dealing with that situation, you could be scared, you could be angry, you could be <laughs> dealing with a whole bunch of other things, and so having to wrestle with all of those things in milliseconds mm. is really difficult, but we are expected to do those things. And not only that, there's an expectation that our behavior will be a certain way, that, you know, we will be as informed as law enforcement or with some sort of discipline, military training. Training, yeah that needs to come, I I guess, inherently? Well, we're doing it in schools. Okay. My daughter, so at the fair, my daughter gets ready to go into the line to get onto a ride, and she stood in line like this because she had been, we have, we militarize our children in these inner city, in these black, uh, predominantly black schools to stand in line and be quiet and and do this, da-da-da-da-da. And we have to, we instill this importance of self-control right. from an exterior point. Right. But it's, I mean, you can certainly exhibit self-control, um, but that panic, that inner panic yeah. that's going on manifests itself no matter how you, how you try. How, how would you teach a, a child uh, a kid, a teenager who's already, you know, teenagers in particular have a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of stuff. Oh, those poor things. Um, <laughs> in addition to that, they're in the car with their friends. Yeah. They get stopped. Yeah. And, you know, people have said, oh, if you're not doing anything wrong, you have nothing to worry about. Everything will be fine. But... Yeah. No, everything is is not fine. How do you teach a child to to exhibit that really adult type stuff when they're not an adult? Right. <laughs> How do you teach adults that? <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know. I, and I think there's there's something very important to be discussed in regards, uh, you know, in terms of the difference between self control and autonomy. Uh-huh. Because, yeah, okay, I have self-control, but if I don't have autonomy to, to do the things that I actually want to do, I just want to get through this traffic stop. Right. Alive. Alive. I don't care if you give me a ticket. Let me get out of here alive. Let me go home. Right? But if that's not under my control, and the only thing that I can control is how I respond to things, I think that might be a start in, in how we talk to our children, talk to our teenagers about the overall situation 
um, it's easy for a teenager to, it seems easy for anyone to get caught up in, you know, the confusion of being accused of something. Uh-huh. And the, you know, all of those, all of those emotions come at once, right? So <laughs> telling someone or expecting someone to really think on a macro level what's actually happening. Right, right. You can't deal with what's before right. or even what's after. You have to really be in that in that moment. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the bigger tenets of acting, of performing, mm-hmm. is being in that moment, being present in yourself, yeah. in that situation. Um, so if you were teaching a, a new dancer with her brand new brown point shoes mm-hmm. to do that, how would you, how would you explain that? How do you explain being in the moment? Um, I would explain first that you just have to pay attention to yourself. Uh-huh. Pay attention to how you're feeling, where are you holding your tension? And then just try to navigate the steps that I'm giving. Uh-huh. Just try to navigate the steps that I'm giving. Um, if I'm teaching you the principles of this technique, if I, if I have, if, or if you have any prior training, then you can pull from those things while you're paying attention. So the the taps dance that I did, it was all improv. And the music cut out, which is good because the music cut out. And um, I just had to keep going. But I was able to pay attention to what's happening with the music, pay attention to how I can bring this kind of crazy situation back to the objective at hand, which is to honor right uh-huh. and still do the movement so it's just kind of it's a hard answer but the answer is pay attention to everything and kind of focus sort of on on that one yeah that one thing that you're doing in in each moment and at each time yeah <laughs> that was Bridget Jaipal Valenza with Jacqueline Cherry from August 24th and we end the show with Jay Moran discussing healthy food access on the east side with Denise Barr of the Fruit Belt Leadership from June 1st of last year. Mrs. Barr, how are you managing today? Today's a better day. It's been a little bit easier today. I feel like now that I've we've been through the funerals and, you know, we're st- starting to even some things out, I feel like uh, I can sleep a little better. I had a chance to meet you over at the um, Fruit Belt yesterday, and I thought you brought up a really interesting point that I haven't heard in a lot of the discussions in recent weeks, and that is Buffalo's East Side isn't one homogeneous entity. (laughs) Exactly. It's a series of neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. Expand on that a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's uh, for people that know me, that's always a uh, source for spot with me that people talk about community and it's become a soundbite. You know, it gives you that warm and fuzzy, but you never know what community they're talking about. And I've been very specific and intentional that when I'm talking about community, I'm talking about the Fruit Belt because that's where I live and that's where I work. I cannot be the voice of a community that I don't represent. I don't know really much about. You know, but people love to do that, right? They talk about the East Side. Even when you see on the news, when they show the clips over, there's crime, right? It's on the East Side. Well, 
yeah, but there's a lot of neighborhoods on right. the east side. So it would be like talking about, you know, uh, the whole community of Buffalo and showing a film clip and you're like, okay, so where is that? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and we'd love to talk about some of those other neighborhoods and we'll get into it because I think that's you bring up a, a good point about that. And that's something we can talk about in future shows with other people who mm-hmm. live in those neighborhoods. Exactly. Let's talk about your neighborhood, the Fruit Belt. Mm-hmm. What do you tell people when you tell them they're not from Buffalo, that you're from the Fruit Belt. What do you tell right. about that? So, you know, our community was originally mostly German. There were um, uh, there was a blend of other nationalities that lived there, but it was predominantly German. Uh, we still have some of that architecture that's in our community. Um, since the white flight had happened, now it's mostly people of color. It's mostly seniors. It's mostly people that have lived in the same home all of their lives or most of their lives. A lot of people that are in the community are either uh, related by blood or they're related by relationship, you know. So that's really where my community is, that it's mostly seniors. It makes it a little bit unique, right, compared to other communities. Yeah, most certainly it has a nice kind of a geographic yep. uh, semblance to it, uh, for sure, that kind of keeps it a little more tight-knit and it's always easy to remember the, the names of the of the fruits that uh, are on the streets as well. Yeah. Uh, the one thing I heard about yesterday, I heard it from two different people in regards to the neighborhood, the Grandma Patrol. Ah, the Grandma Patrol. Yes. Yeah, so when the uh, when when the um, information was coming along about the donation being possible for the African Heritage uh, Food Co-op building. We had been trying to, I had been trying to figure out how are we going to make sure that while the building is being stabilized, that it doesn't get interfered with. You know, once you put information out there in the media sources, you don't know what's going to come after that. And so, you know, there was a conversation with some people in the community and we thought about the easiest thing we could do is have the grandma patrol, right? Because there were some people that live right on that street, right up the street. It's They don't even have to go anywhere outside of their porch to look at the building. And so, you know, it's nothing for a grandma to go sit outside when the weather is decent and, you know, just keep an eye on it from time to time. So that was a, a, a plus and a bonus for me. We've lost three of those grandmas since then. And uh, that's a pain in my heart because I had a good relationship with a couple of them. I really liked them a lot, you know, but people pass on and that's the way uh, things happen. Why don't you talk about grandmothers and their role in the black community? And we lost several grandmothers yes, in the shooting over at the Tops Market. Discuss a little bit about how a grandmother is a central figure in many black households? Um, You know, it's not just a grandmother. Sometimes it's a mom who takes on other children. Like, for instance, I have people that know me. I have a lot of um, inherited sons. I have sons that I gave birth to, but I also inherited sons and some daughters. They hate that when I don't talk about them. (laughs) But, you know, I mean, it's not that they didn't they don't have moms or they weren't raised properly. It's not that. It's just that kids need that extra mentorship sometimes. Even our young men. You know, we have this idea of how 
young black males hit that age, that magical age of 18, okay, you got that diploma that you walked across that stage for high school, you're good, you got it, go ahead, right? Well, no, because they're still trying to figure stuff out and they need mentorship. We're lacking that in our community a lot of the time, you know. We know what happened with the, the 60s and the 70s and the 80s with black males being swept up and taken out of the communities. And so a lot of that is not there for them. Those pieces are missing and they need that. You know, they need that mentorship to help them to figure out, you know, what to do. Like, how how am I supposed to navigate this? Back uh, to talking a little bit about the African Heritage uh, Food Co-op that uh, is prospected to go to that location on Carlton Street, Carlton and Lemon, if I'm not yes. mistaken. Uh, we have some more information on that at our website, WBFO.org, if you want to find out about it. But what would that mean to have that grocer, full-service grocer in that location right there in that well, neighborhood? To tell you the truth, I mean, this is a conversation that we've been having since 2018 when the building was stabilized. And the reality is that in the Fruit Belt neighborhood, if that building had already been up and running, we wouldn't even be struggling as hard as we are right now to try to figure out how we're going to be able to access some things. I mean, you're not going to get everything there, but there's a lot of things that we could access from there. And the fact that here we are in 2022 and we're still trying to get funding for this building, you know, it feels a lot like the, it's the same reason why my community is still technically redlined. It's the same reason why co my community is still disinvested in. You know, all of these things that are working together to keep poor people poor and keep them in the place where they are. You know, it's not right. But people are waking up. And they're realizing that there are communities that have been left behind and they deserve to have what everybody else has. It's interesting also, of course, the Fruit Belt is close to the surging part mm. of Buffalo. And that's the Buffalo Niagara Medical Campus. What I lovingly refer to as the wall. Yeah, <laughs> interesting. It is interesting in a lot of ways. Uh, talk about how that entity and its growth has impacted your community, your neighborhood? Well, you know, I mean, obviously, the direct impact is on the infrastructure. If you go to my street, probably right now, right at the corner of Grape and High, you're going to find a sinkhole. And that's very common in our neighborhood. You know, all, all the speculators about land who are driving up these prices, but they're not telling you that there are sinkholes in this community. It's very common. You know, people have them in their yards. They have them in, in on, on their property. They are, they're everywhere. They're on the streets. You know, they're on my, there's one on my street for sure. But um, it's the infrastructure because when you think about that community and what it was, you know, all of this time that has passed, there hasn't been a, a lot of... Um, fortification put into how the traffic flow is going to manage. You know, all of these things that happen when you put up these new structures off of our perimeter, but if you're not adding those additional pieces to make sure that we can manage that, you know, in terms of our infrastructure, then naturally there's going to be a breakdown, which is what we have been seeing for quite some time. I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that you have made it your 
business to make sure there are people at City Hall that know that that's the oh, case? Oh, they know. As a matter of fact, our councilman is very much aware, and he talks about it in Common Council all the time, that there are neighborhoods that have potholes, but we have sinkholes. And the response continues to be? Well, uh, you know, I, I try to be enthusiastic and encouraged about things. You know, I believe in a word that says sometimes you have to encourage yourself. You know, I believe that we have to continue to fight because we have to fight for everything anyway. Everything is a fight for my neighborhood. And so I have to fight to remind people that while they're driving the prices of buildings and properties, they're forgetting to tell people what they're really purchasing. You know, I have to be mindful to continue to pinch the city that we need extra help with our streets. You know, if you continue to uh, put in the enhancements for the wall, you know, they get the tunnels underneath the ground that are all all the pipes and all of that is is put in brand new every few years. And then as a matter of fact, at Michigan and Carlton, you're coming, if you're walking, you'll notice that right there in the middle of the street is a divider where you'll see half of the street, half of the road is black because it was just resurfaced. It was just redone. And the other half is just what you would normally see in that gray kind of cement kind of color. Well, it's an instantaneous reminder as you step off the sidewalk and you're heading from Roswell into you know, the fruit belt that, okay, there's that invisible line that divides us right there. So it's a not so invisible line. Well, it's not for us, but, you know, it tends to be for a lot of people because they get caught up and they don't pay attention. True story. I mean, um, I probably maybe four years or so ago, I was coming home. It was the summertime. It was a nice Saturday morning. I'm coming home with my bags of groceries. I come out of Allen Station and I'm heading down the street past Roswell to go home. And this guy is walking on the other side of me. You know, we're just meeting each other because we're walking the same distance. And, uh, well, we thought we were. And he says to me, oh, you're moving in. <laughs> and I was confused. And I was like, um, excuse you? And he said, I see you've got all these bags. You're moving in. I'm like, I have groceries. I'm going home. I don't know what you're talking about. He was like, oh, I thought you were going into Roswell. I'm like, um, <sighs> let me remind you. Maybe you don't know there's a whole community right after that. People, there are people that live there. Um, maybe you should go the other direction sometime and go check it out. It was a very uncomfortable moment for me because I was trying to be nice in the face of how could you really be that ignorant that you think that that's the only place I could possibly be heading to? We're talking with Denise Barr, one of the members of the leadership of the Fruit Belt community with us uh, this morning here on WBFO. Um, Sinkholes aside, what are the other challenges for your neighborhood? Well, obviously, the parking is continuing to be an issue. You know, when we first negotiated about the parking permits, you know, the uh, medical campus did not want to recognize the conversation that over the years they were going to increase their workforce. 
Which is obvious. It's and it obvious was the goal. to anybody. It was the goal. I yeah. mean, even, you know, I brought up the conversation about even seasonally, you're going to increase your workforce. It's just common sense that during the Christmas holidays, you know what happens out there or at the gardens. I mean, anybody that has knowledge of that area knows that there are going to be more people parking. So we're seeing how it is you know, stretching itself out in our neighborhood, how it started out at a certain point and now it's lengthening itself out. And even, to be honest with you, I've been in conversations with the principal over at City Honors because we've been talking about it. And he was having a lot of problems with people parking in front of the high school. So, you know, we had some conversation about what to do about that. He Since then, we agreed to put up some signs that said, you know, you, I think it's a 15-minute um, parking limit that right. you can be seated, you know, in front of that, that, that building. But, yeah, I mean, that's where we are right now. And there are, I got to see it yesterday because I had to go, yes. find, I had to go find a, a spot over <laughs> on Orange Street. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which is fine. But you do see the signs that say oh, yeah. residential permit only. Exactly. Uh, how is that working out, generally speaking? You know, I mean, it's not a perfect plan. It needs some tweaking, but it's better because at least our seniors can go out for their appointments or go out for their groceries if they can do that. And, you know, not be afraid that when they come back, somebody's going to be parked in front of their their property or parked, you know, uh, in their spot. I mean, that was the whole purpose around this was to make sure that our seniors were protected in that way. We don't have a lot of time left, but I did want to touch upon the community land trust. Uh, maybe that almost seems like something we should do a whole nother show on a little bit because it, <laughs> it does offer an idea about what's possible in the yes. city. But give us an outline of it, please. Uh, generally speaking, I mean, it is uh, the idea that our city should be donating or selling the lots because there are a lot of vacant lots. So let's, you know, make sure that the, it falls into the hands of the people that want to make sure there's investment that are going to redevelop them. And so, you know, there was the agreement between the city and the uh, Fruit Belt Community Land Trust that they would allow them to purchase, although they purchased for much more than the lots were worth. But, you know, they did purchase um, the initial lots. There were four lots, I believe, and there are two houses that have gone up at this point. You know, with this market, obviously, what we've seen that's happened over the last four years or so, it's become much more difficult to be able to acquire land, but they're working on it. Uh, and generally speaking, again, uh, feel good about it? Is it a positive? I feel good about it. I mean, those those the land will always belong to the community. The houses can be sold. You know, people can 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 do that, but the land will always belong to the community. And there's a a cap on how much profit you can make off the sale of those houses, so they'll always be reasonably affordable. So a success story right in our one of our neighborhoods. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's that, a win. We need all the wins we can get. I like the, the, the smile right there of pride. <laughs> uh, the final question, and I want you to clarify this for our listening audience, because you clarified this for me yesterday. When I met you, I said, uh, Mrs. Barr, how are you doing? Yeah. And you said... That's painful because it hits people of color in the gut right now, right? Because I don't know how to really respond to that. If you ask me how I'm managing... Then I can take a breath, I can take a pause, and I can give you an answer. You know, um, I don't even know for myself right now how I'm doing. You know, that's a challenge from day to day. 
because everything is right underneath the surface for us. You know, we're breathing in our trauma and our pain and just, you know, we take a pause and we go on to the next thing and then we, you know, we stop and we reflect and then we take a pause and we go on to the next thing. We don't have time right now to deal with the trauma. So, you know, just to make it easier for other people, you know, just remember, you know, it's a simple thing. Don't ask me how I'm doing. Just ask me how I'm managing. And that will do it for today's Summertime Producer Picks episode. We would like to thank our guests, John Washington, Jacqueline Cherry, and Denise Barr. If you missed anything, you'll like to hear it again. A reminder that this program is a podcast. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts or the new Amplified BTPM app. And each episode is available online on demand at WBFO.org. This is WBFO, WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, WBJ Jamestown, your NPR station. This is Charles Gilbert. Thanks for listening.